life. The Bible describes it as abundant, powerful, and filled with meaning, but honestly, some would say, that's not the life they know. God feels far away, silent. Their life is mundane and unfulfilling, but what if God were close? What if life felt alive and full of power? This is a six-part series about the Spirit of God living in us. We just spent six weeks doing a series called God Within about the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And we talked about things like how the entire quality of life will change, our character of life will change, and uh, how God will always be with us and he'll understand everything that we're going through and, and he's right there and we have access to him and how we can hear his voice because God lives within and how he gives us gifts and how he moves in supernatural power. We talked about all sorts of things. And so the question that I've been asked multiple times this week and, and, and we've had quite a few conversations with different people is, what now? Where do we go from here? How do we have spirit-filled worship that glorifies God and at the same time edifies everybody in the room? It's a pretty good question if you think about it. Because we've got some people saying, okay, we talked six weeks about the Holy Spirit. You encourage us to seek spiritual gifts and to move in supernatural power. Um, are we about to start seeing people run up and down the aisles and falling out during worship? And then I've got people saying, if we don't do that, we're missing God. And then I've got people saying, if we do that, you're going to be missing me. <laughs> and so I think it's an important time for us to really sit down and say, how do we respond to the series that's, that we've just heard and what will we do? What will Sunday morning look like? Here's the good news is I don't have to make up the answer to this. The Bible already has it. So instead of me uh, on a holiday weekend and when I was supposed to be gone, coming and spending two days trying to write a sermon or whatever, I just decided I'd just read the Bible to you. See, you're still trying to figure out if I'm joking or not. I'm not joking. Because there is a passage in the Bible that actually tells us when we come together to worship as a family, that there should be some rules that we put into place that may not be exactly the same as when you worship by yourself. We use the words corporate worship because we come together corporately. That's what that means. And personal worship. And so I'm just going to read this passage to you and, and share with you uh, some thoughts behind it and what it means as we go through this. But we're starting from a point, I, I need to see if you agree with the point. I'm going to start with this premise. Let me read this to you. I believe there is a way for us to worship God, use the gifts that God has given us, experience His presence and His supernatural power, and to do so in a way that brings glory to God and draws others into His kingdom. I'm going to say that again because that's a very important statement because that's the whole premise of what I have to say today. There is a way to worship God where we use the gifts God has given us, we experience His presence and His supernatural power, and we do so in a way that glorifies Him and draws others into His kingdom. The question, though, is how do we do that? So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14 today. You can follow along because we won't be flipping around one thing. And if you didn't bring your Bibles, it'll be on the screen uh, anyway, it'll be a lot of fun. Let me just uh, help us understand that most of what we know about spiritual gifts uh, and how to worship with those gifts comes out of Paul's teachings to the Corinthians. And he wrote a lot of our New Testament and to lots of groups of different people. And he taught in several places about spiritual gifts and how to use them. But he didn't do that with everyone. 
And we're not 100% sure why he didn't do it with everyone. Maybe they didn't have the same questions or they weren't facing the same issues. But what we do know is the Corinthian church was having issues. They were really struggling with how to do these things that were more than natural, how to put them into practice in worship and to, to actually still glorify God and at the same time have people in the room who were new to the experience be able to join in. They were having troubles. So Paul writes them this letter and he explains some things. But before we get into chapter 14, let me set the stage. You know that the chapters came from us just a few hundred years ago, right? That Paul didn't put numbers when he wrote his letter. And, and so when someone writes a letter, they, they, they have a conscious stream of thought. And they're talking about a big picture. And so we get caught up sometimes with little pieces of passages taken out of context. And we don't want to do that. So let me set the context for you. Paul had talked about some different issues, and then he moved to the issue of spiritual gifts. For us, it starts in what would be chapter 12, but again, that wasn't there. But you should still read this. If you ever want to go home and sit down and read it, read 12, 13, and 14 together, because this is where Paul is doing one subject for an extended period of time. And if you go back to 12, he starts it out with this sentence. I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. And then he uses the rest of chapter 12 to teach so that they're no longer ignorant. And as he was doing this and teaching about spiritual gifts, the phone rang and somebody said that he needed to come and preach a wedding. So he paused and he wrote a wedding. <laughs> Just seeing how many of you even know your Bibles. All right. Because 1 Corinthians 13 is what we quote with every wedding we do. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It does not keep any records. Right? You got all that? But what he was actually trying to say was, as you use all of these gifts, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're not going to use your gifts in love, you've missed the whole point of spiritual gifts. Because he literally says in chapter 13, again, that he didn't have numbers, but he literally says, if I speak in the tongues of men and the angels, but don't do it in love, I have nothing. So he is trying to make it very clear. I just taught you about all these spiritual gifts. Some of them are different. You may not understand them all. Some people may reject them 2,000 years later, but I'm teaching you about them. They're important. But if you don't exercise them in love towards others, you have completely missed the purpose of spiritual gifts. The purpose of spiritual gifts is not a display of your personal spirituality. But the Corinthians thought it was. And so after he teaches that, it gives them the warning of 13. Then he goes on to say, when you come together, let's talk about how you should use these spiritual gifts. We call it chapter 14. Starts out like this. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. I thought you just taught about all of these spiritual gifts. The Bible says they're somewhere between 20 and 30. It depends on who's defining them and who's categorizing them and so forth. There's not a perfect agreement on the number, but there's somewhere out there around 25. And Paul says, desire these earnestly, and then says, but especially that you do one. Why? Why would he have us especially do one than another? And what he's going to do for the next couple of verses is he's going to pit one against the other. And if you've ever read this, you know what he's about to do. He's about to talk about tongues and prophecy. And he's going to say this about tongues and this about prophecy and this about tongues and this about prophecy. And he's going to do it all throughout the chapter. But here's what we need to understand. If he's only talking specifically about these two, then everything, every other gift, we don't have any teaching on how to use it in corporate worship when we come together, right? So we have to understand what he's really getting at. 
He is using these two gifts that are a bit of an extreme to represent two types of gifts. You see, the type of gifts that tongues fits into is a type of gift where not everybody understands what's going on. That makes sense? That, that already made sense because some of you are going like, oh, you're right. I don't understand what's going on if somebody gets up and speaks in tongues. And on the other hand, prophecy is supposed to be something where everyone does understand what's going on. Now, I know when I say prophecy, automatically everybody got a picture in your head of all sorts of different things. You may have uh, seen Elijah back in the Old Testament. That may have been what comes to mind. Or you may think about Jonah going to the Ninevites or Isaiah running around in his underwear for three years. Aren't y'all glad God didn't tell you to do that? And you need to understand that we aren't going to have any more Old Testament prophets. Nobody's going to write any more of the Bible. But when we talk about uh, prophecy, what we're really talking about is the ability to reveal the divine will. We're talking about the ability to communicate the truth of God in a way that influences God's people. Sometimes that will include some details to convince you that it is actually from God. Does that make sense? Now, so here's a question. And I'll, I'll, I'll warn you up front, this is a trick question. When I come up here and speak, am I prophesying? Well, I got to know. Do I have any yeses just for the fun of it? She's going to go with yes. She's just like, I love this. Well, if you don't come to hear me be inspired by the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of God in a way that would influence you, which would be prophecy, then what that means is you come just to hear me which I appreciate, Daniel, if you love me that much. But I told you it was a trick question. You don't want to come to just hear me, right? You hopefully believe that when I sit down every week, I sit down and say, God, what do you want to say to your people this week? And then I begin to prepare notes out of what I believe the Holy Spirit speaks to me. And so in that definition, it should be some form of prophecy. Again, I'm not standing up and saying, whoa, doomed to you kind of thing, which was Old Testament prophecy but the ability to communicate God's truth in a way that brings life to you. And so that is what we're talking about. Prophecy is a very large umbrella term for any kind of communication from God to his people. That's, that's what that is, really large umbrella term, okay? So are y'all good with me on that? So we've got tongues and prophecy, and here's where Paul goes. He begins to use his illustration. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Well, that sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Speaking to God, I'd like to be able to speak to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. But on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Okay. So the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Are y'all following this? Because I know some people are, are not comfortable with the idea of tongues. Can, can I just go ahead and mess things up for you? And let you, know, I might, we might lose somebody when I say this, but at Grace Life, we believe if it's in the Bible, it's still for today. We don't believe gifts have been dismissed or they're no longer relevant. We believe everything is relevant. We do believe, however, that there is a right way and a right place and a right time to exercise every spiritual gift. Does that make sense? Okay. So with that being said, some people like to use this passage to think that Paul is saying we should prophesy and nobody should ever speak in tongues. Tongues is bad. It's not existing anymore. But that's not what he just said. He just said if you speak in tongues, you're speaking to God. I'd personally love that, right? Then he just said that if you speak to God in tongues, you are actually edifying yourself. You are building yourself up. That would be another good reason to do it. So he's not actually bashing tongues. That's, you need to understand that up front. If you're going to get his real point, he's not bashing tongues. He says this, though. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. 
everyone. In other words, you can stand on the front row and do something that edifies you. Or you can do something that edifies every single person in the room. He's saying that he would rather, especially, back to verse 1, why does he want us especially to prophesy? Because he wants us to do the one that encourages everybody, not just you. Isn't that funny? Don't we teach kids to do that when they're like three? Share with your sister, share with your brother, do something for them, not just for yourself. So he goes on to say, look, I want you all to speak in tongues, which again, kind of proves he likes the idea of it. But even more to prophesy, he already told us why, because the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. You see, the minute that somebody stands up and speaks in tongues and another person interprets, it just turned into prophecy. And so now he's good with it, right? And so he just goes on to keep making his illustration as any good teacher would do. He made his point. Now let me make it practical to you. So if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I, I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how is anybody going to know what's being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. And there are doubtless many languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, which is a good thing to want the Spirit of God to move through you, strive to excel in the ones that build up the church. That's all he's trying to say. And he's just classifying this one against the other, these two groups, so that you can understand that. And so he says this, so if you are going to speak in a tongue, pray that somebody will interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What he's trying to say is it is, as he just said, an unintelligible language. You are speaking to God. It's the language of angels, and you're not going to cognitively know what you're doing. So he says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what should we do? Don't you love it? I don't have to answer. I'm just reading the Bible. I will pray with my spirit but I will pray with my mind also. I'll take it further. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing my, with my mind also. What he's trying to say is, he's not forbidding any of it. He's going to do every single part of it. He's going to do tongues. He's going to do prophecy. He's going to pray with his mind. He's going to pray with his spirit, but he has, he's making a point as to when and where and why, because that's all important. So he says, look, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you were saying? I want you to understand this. Let's, let's look at that phrase, amen. Do y'all know what amen means? Agree. So be it. May it be so. So if I stand up on this stage and say, glory to God, amen. And you should. You should say, so be it. So be glory to God. But if someone stands up on stage and does something you don't recognize or understand and it makes no sense to you or they do it in a language you can't understand, how do you say, so be it? I mean, you don't know if they were placing their lunch order at Moe's. I mean, you, you don't know what they were doing and that's Paul's point because he says it in the next sentence. For though you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So he actually, follow this. Did you catch what he just said? So although you are talking to God and you are being edified and God is being glorified, 
Everybody else is not being built up. There's still a problem. Most people I would know would say, Paul, you're a heretic. I mean, Paul, all we really have to do is worship God. If God is glorified, nothing else matters. But it's God's word that says, yeah, glorify me and edify my people at the same time. God is actually calling us to glorify him in a way that edifies his people, two in one. Isn't that cool? And you think I'm making that up? Let's keep reading. So he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So whoever is trying to get rid of tongues, I mean, Paul's kind of clear here. I thank God I'm better than you. I thank God I got like three tongues, languages. I don't know. I'm just making it up. You know, but he's having a good time with this. But then he says, nevertheless, in church, in corporate worship, when we come together as a family, I would rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words in a tongue. Wow. And I always thought this next paragraph in Scripture is tough. Kind of confusing, actually. If you've ever read it, you're with me. You're already like, what? Because he seems to make some statements that don't make any sense. First of all, he makes one that seems to be out of place. And then the second verses that come after that, the next four, he seems to be saying something that totally contradicts what he just said. So let me see if I can help us here and make some sense of it. The very next thing out of his mouth, he's been talking about tongues and he's been talking about prophecy. And now he suddenly goes and says this, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. What? Do not be children in your, wait a minute. Were, were they just suddenly like running around or doing something childish? I mean, where'd that come from? Actually, they were. You see, you got to remember all of these letters are written in context. You could write a letter to your spouse with some code phrases of things y'all have said before, and each of you would know what it means. But we wouldn't necessarily understand 2,000 years later. They knew what they were doing, and they knew what Paul was saying to them. They got it when he said, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Matter of fact, the only thing that I do want you to be infants in would be evil. But outside of that, in your thinking, be mature. What he is trying to say, because he's been saying it all along, is when we come together corporately, if you want to exercise spiritual gifts that only help you, that is selfish. And by selfish, we say immature. And when we come together, if you're going to be mature, then you therefore have to be thinking about other people. So then he actually comes all the way back to declare why this matters. And he goes as far back as to Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah when he says this. Because in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. I've always wondered why that was there. When I was a kid reading this, I thought, why does he just randomly throw this in there? Because his next sentences right after it are based upon this. You see, what happened hundreds of years earlier is the Israelites had rebelled against God. And God said, you will not listen to me. You will not obey my voice. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send you out of your land. You're going to lose everything that you have. I'm going to scatter you all over the earth. You're going to live under foreign governments, under foreign rule, and in the midst of foreign languages. And it will be a sign against you that you are on the outside of your relationship with me. Did y'all follow all that? Because if you did, the next part will make sense, and if not, it won't. So he goes on. Now that they understand, people who are in the midst of all this that they don't understand, and, and they're on the outside of their relationship with God, it's a sign against them. So he goes on in his next sentence and says, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for 
unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for believers, I'm sorry, not for unbelievers, but for believers. It actually sounds like he has changed his mind, doesn't it? Sounds like he's completely contradiction everything else he had said. Until you realize that when the Bible says a sign, it can mean that it's a sign of condemnation or a sign of confirmation. And so what he's really saying is it's a sign of condemnation. So then tongues is a sign not for believers of confirmation, but it's a sign of condemnation for unbelievers. Just as, because he quoted the Isaiah thing and, and put them into that frame of reference. If you find yourself in the midst of this stuff that you do not understand, you're on the outside. And that's what he's trying to say. So when you come into a room, so for instance, let's look at it this way. If someone stood up on stage and began speaking in tongues, how many of you would understand what's going on? That was not a lot of, I didn't mean you would understand their words. Let me, let me clarify that. You may not understand their words. How many of you would understand what's going on? There you go. Why? Because you are a believer, I'm assuming, who understands scripture. And even if you don't have that gift, even if you don't understand how that gift works, you know it's in the Bible. And if it began happening, you would at least go, hmm, well, it is God. Right? You may not understand every word, but you would recognize the source. And so what he means by it's a sign condemning unbelievers is because they're going to stand there if somebody got up on stage and spoke in tongues. A non-believer who does not understand scripture, does not understand spiritual gifts is going to go, what the heck? So that's what he means by that. A little confusing there, right? Y'all still look as confused as before I said that. I'm, I can read faces. Uh, so let's just uh, see if we can make more sense of it as we go on. So he says this, if therefore the whole church, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? They don't know what's going on. They don't get it. And do we want to come together to worship God and have everybody who does not yet know God is not yet in the kingdom? Do, is the goal for them to go, man, these people are crazy? Or is the goal, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he will be convicted by all because he's called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Which one is our goal? The second one, right? I mean, we don't want people leaving Grace Life going, that was weird. I don't know what that was. I mean, granted, there's always things of question when you talk about God. I get that. I'm not saying that, that never will something happen that people can't understand. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But the goal is what he contrasted. We want people to come to Grace Life and go, glory to God. Can I be a part of this? Can I worship this God with you? Can I commit my life to following? That's, that's the goal. He literally says that's the goal. The goal would not be to have people say you're out of your minds. So he has made it very clear. He will use that gift of tongues that would say, people would say you're out of your minds. He's going to use it more than anybody, but he's going to do it in his personal worship when he knows there is not an outsider watching him. But when he comes together in a church, he's going to speak in a language everybody knows. So again, don't get caught up with just tongues and prophecy. Get caught up with this. Gifts that people can understand and be drawn to God and gifts people cannot understand and say we're out of our minds and run for the door. That's really what he's trying to say when you come together, do that. So he sums it up with this. So what? What then, brothers? When you come together, follow this. This is so important. Each one. Each one of us should have a hymn 
a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Just let all things be done for building up. And so if any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or three at most, and each in turn so that it's orderly, and then someone should actually interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, then let them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. In other words, you can keep doing your personal worship. I'm not condemning it. You just, that's what he's trying to say. Just not here because it doesn't make any sense to everyone else. That's, I mean, he literally just said that. And then he goes on to say, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. How would y'all like it if we did church like that? Right after Brett sang his first song, we'll just take a vote. Y'all think that's from God? All right, Brett, sit down. We don't like what you're doing today. What if we had meters in the sermon, like every eight minutes in the sermon? Y'all think I'm tracking with God? Do I get to go on? You know, I mean, but that's literally what he says is that the body weighs what's going on, that we together would say, yeah, that doesn't sound like that's from God. You need to take a seat. Whoa. That's kind of cool if you think about it, though. Y'all don't want to do that, do you? Y'all leave the dirty work to me to sit up here and tell people to get off the stage. Then they don't like me anymore. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And, and this is so important. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You see, I train young people for ministry. And uh, all the time I'm teaching young people, young uh, guys that believe they're called into preaching and teaching. And I'm trying to train them how to, to uh, get up and preach the word of God and and I was training this, this young man one time, and um, I, I was trying to give him some parameters because I, I like parameters at first. I believe one of the first things anybody needs to learn is submission to authority. I, I think you need to learn how to fit into some rules that other people give you to make sure you're willing to serve other people. And then after you learn how to serve other people, you can go and show off for yourself. Does that make sense? And so I had given him some parameters for his message, and he said, I, I don't think I can fit in these parameters because the Spirit of God might move on me well, that's not an option. He said, but what if I'm in the middle of my message and the Spirit of God moves on me just to give a word in the tongue or something like that? I said, just don't do it. He said, you're telling me that I can't be who I'm called to be and move in the power of the Spirit. I said, no, actually, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm telling you the very thing the Bible says. Can you back up to what that just said? When we come together, each one of you should have something. Every person in the room should be able to raise their hand and say, the Spirit of God has moved on me. Matter of fact, According to that, if you don't get something from God, you should start asking what's wrong. Every single one of us should have something that if for whatever reason, I just got up here on stage and said, hey, Michaela, hey, Elizabeth, hey, whatever, get up on stage. You should have something from God if I wanted to do that, which I will not do to you. So telling me the spirit of God has moved upon you just says, good. <laughs> That's the way it should be. But even Paul says, the Spirit of God should move on every person in the room, but only two or three get to speak. In other words, it's not unbiblical to say, that's not for now, or that's not going to help. Please take a seat. I know that sounds like heresy, right? Except he's the one that says, don't tell me you're out of control because the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You have the ability to do this in order because our God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Now, let me put that into context because, again, Paul's writing to people who understand and here's what's going on. The Corinthian church took place in one of the worst cities on planet Earth. The Corinthians as a people were so bad that their name had turned into a verb. You know how we've turned Google into a verb? You Google things, right? Okay. 
It, was, it wasn't even a word. Then it became a noun. Then it became a verb. Okay? They were the same way. They, in the Greek language, they actually developed a verb called to Corinthianize. And it meant to take, play, to take part in the worst sexual immorality possible because they were so sexually immoral as a city, as a people, as a culture. And so they had all sorts of pagan worship that included orgies and sexual practices and so forth. But they would do something also to speak in tongues. They spoke in tongues. Remember, every gift spiritually has a counterfeit out there. You can read in Scripture where a little girl was telling fortunes and, and prophesying, and Paul actually rebuked her for it, right? And so for everything that there is the Christian version, there is a counterfeit version. And so what was happening in pagan worship surrounding the Corinthians is that they would come together and that they would speak in tongues until that they worked themselves into a trance and completely lost control, would pass out or dance around or do whatever. It was a really kind of wild and crazy event. The closest thing we have today, if you've never seen it, praise God, and if you have, well, then you know what I'm talking about, would be like a witch coven who dances around a campfire and they, their whole goal is to lose control. Because if you lose control, it shows that you are consumed by the Spirit and you have a greater spiritual connection than the other people. That is pagan worship. And so as they left and, and, and started following Jesus and trying to follow Jesus, they didn't have a good model for how to worship God in a healthy way, so they just tried to do what they knew to do from their former life, Right? The Bible actually tells us they were still doing some sexual things they shouldn't have been doing in church. And they would just run around and all speak in tongues and go crazy because they were trying to show that they were the most spiritual because they were overcome by the Spirit. And Paul is trying to say, stop it. That's not Christian worship. Because our God is a God of order. And He's a God of peace. And He should move on every single person here but every single person here has control over what God is doing. You see, I was challenged this week by a couple of questions. Someone asked, what if in the middle of worship, someone falls on the floor and starts speaking in tongues? They're slain in the spirit was the phrase they used. And I said, we'll have the blue shirts escort them out. Because they can continue what God is doing with them in a private room. I didn't say I would stop it just said I'd move them to another place. They didn't like my answer. They asked the question, well, then what if someone gets up out of a wheelchair and starts running around the room? What will you do then? Watch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously. I mean, because I can't make somebody get out of a wheelchair that rightly deserve to be in it. Let's put it that way. I mean, if somebody comes to worship in a wheelchair and they will up and they're sitting right there and they've been in a wheelchair for, let's say, 10 years in the middle of a song of break every chain, break every chain, they stand up and start going hallelujah and running around in circles. And even if it's in a language I don't understand, I'm just going to watch. <laughs> and if you would rather they sit back down in that wheelchair, then yeah, not the right church for you. I'm just going to say that. Okay, is that cool? But that's because what God just did is going to edify every person in the room. We're all going to go, man, our God still does miracles. Man, this is awesome. This is cool. But if somebody suddenly falls on the floor right there and just starts, you know, doing something that no one else understands, God may be doing that. You do know people were slain in the Spirit in the Bible, right? I mean, Paul was, but nobody around Paul understood it. Peter was, but Peter was in private. I mean, it's biblical, but it's also personal. And Paul's whole point is when we come together, our goal of worship is not personal, it is family. You can personal worship 
He even said he's going to use tongues more than anybody else. He's going to use those gifts more than anybody else, but he's going to do it in a different setting. When we come together for worship, it's about the family, not about the personal. And it's not about losing control. It's about maintaining control because our God is not a God of confusion, but of order and peace. That's what scripture says. And then in case somebody disagreed with Paul, <laughs> I love Paul because uh, I like to put exclamation points on things sometimes. I love that he did too. So he skips down to verse 36 and says, or was it from you? speaking to people who would disagree with him, that the word of God came. I mean, I am the one, I'm the apostle here. That's what he's trying to say. I'm the one that told you. Or are you the only ones that you think it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, then he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And now that it is in scripture and it's our Bible, we now have to believe it double. They, Paul caught him on it. Now we've caught him on the fact that Paul caught him on it. And so what the Bible says is if you think you're spiritual, you have to acknowledge that the first, first Corinthians 14 is the word of the Lord. That's what he just said. You have to acknowledge that there is order to worship and it matters, not just is this from God. This is going to sound like heresy when I say this, but if, if a spiritual gift starts taking place, you do not need to ask the question, or uh, let me rephrase, the only question you need to ask is not, is it from God? There are a lot of people that will let anything happen in church because the only question they're concerned with is, is it from God? Well, it's from God, let them do it. It's from God, let them run the aisles. It's from God, let them swing from the chandeliers. It's from God, let them stand up on the stage and speak in tongues. It's from God, let them do whatever they want to do. That's not the question to ask. According to the Bible, those gifts are from God. So let's just go ahead and default. It's probably from God. The question you need to ask is, what do I do, God, with what you gave me? Do we all stand up and share our thing right now? What do I do with this gift in order to help everyone else in the room? Not just is this gift from you, because it probably is, but what do you want me to do with it? And that's why Paul is writing these instructions. So he says, so my brothers earnestly, earnestly desire to prophesy and earnestly desire to use the gifts that will build up the entire body. But do not forbid speaking in tongues. No, 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 no. Don't, don't say that that's a bad idea. But all things should be done decently and in order. So the answer to the question of what comes next at Grace Life, I don't really know. But my job, and I need you to understand that God has given me and the elders of this church a role to be the protectors for all of you. And so we have to make that tough call. If somebody walks up to me on the front row and says, I believe I have a tongue to share with the church. I'm not the tallest guy in the room. And so sometimes you don't see what happens on the front row when people come up and talk to me. And the first thing I would say to that person is, well, then you better start praying. God has another person walk up here and tell me they've got the interpretation. But even if both people stand beside me and say they do, it is still my job to say, okay, God, is this what you're doing right now? Because the gift is from you. I already acknowledge that. The question is, do you want this here right now? And it's a tough job. It's a tough job to not be able to stop the move of God and also to make sure that everybody in the room is being built up. And that's where we hopefully extend grace to one another. That's what the word grace is all about. At that point where we say, we are trying to keep the train on the rails, but we're also trying to let God drive it. We believe in the supernatural. We believe in the powerful. Last week after I preached on power, we, we lost our drummer a 
couple of weeks ago, supposedly for about six to eight weeks because of some torn ligaments in his ankle or something, and he has a boot and he can't play the drums. But they prayed for him after the service last week, and so now he doesn't need a boot anymore. He's playing drums today. We also had a lady who had a deformed wrist, had been broken for over a year, couldn't do anything with it. We prayed for her. I got a text from the family later that afternoon. She was a grandmother, so she did two miracles. She went outside. She was playing basketball with the wrist with her grandchildren. God moves in power. And we're not going to stop God from moving in power, but we are going to exercise orderly worship so that God is glorified and other people are drawn into his kingdom at the same time. That's the kind of church I want to be. And I hope that that answers the questions of where do we go from here. So with that being said, uh, that's all I had to share. That was my heart. I just felt like that's what God wanted me to do. Again, it was a last minute kind of thing to put together. And I felt like God said, just get up and answer the questions we've been facing all week. And uh, I went over a little bit. Is that okay? You guys good, everybody? All right. Well, thank you for your grace. Right now, I want to talk to those of you who, as you heard me say a minute ago, not everybody in the room is always good with Jesus. There are some people in the room. You've come in here because maybe your family member brought you or maybe you just live in the South and it's what you do on the majority of your Sundays and, and you're checking a box and trying to feel good about the life that you live. But none of that is what matters. As it's real clear from what I said today, I, I, I risk offending people sometimes with making sure you understand there's a very clear line in the sand. And the line is not between those who go to church and those who don't, or those who do this or those who do that. The line is between those who have said, Jesus, I want to serve you with my life. I want you to be my king. And those who have not. And the people who are going to heaven and, and are right with God are the ones who have surrendered their life to Jesus. If you've never done that, I want to help you do that here this morning. And it's very easy. I'm just going to walk you through a conversation. That's all it's going to be. So if you would, would you all just join me in prayer? Pray something like this to yourself and to God. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me so that I could live. I thank you for paying a penalty that I owed but could never repay. I thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your forgiveness. And I especially thank you that you have filled me with your spirit. I pray that you will radically change my life. And right now, my simple prayer is that you will give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch. Church.